on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Cigar Store Idiots. I am Rob, and I have a very special guest with me today, all the way from New York City. Go ahead and tell the people who you are. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me on Cigar Store Idiots. My name is Vic Ferrari. I'm a retired 20-year member of the New York City Police Department. After I retired from the NYPD, I got into writing books. I've written six books, four of which are filled. They're NYPD themes. They're filled with, uh, filled with funny and colorful stories about creative criminals. and That's our favorite thing. That, <laughs> yeah, and just the crazy shit that went on during my 20-year ride at the New York City Police Department. Um, to give you a little background, I'm a city kid, born and raised in the Bronx. I always wanted to become a police officer when I was a little boy. My mother would walk me to the movies and just around the corner from the police, uh, the movie theater was a police station. And at like five, six years old, I used to run up to the police cars and look in the windows and I'd watch the cops standing in front of the station house. And I was just fixated. I knew what I wanted to do. And then by 10 years old, my friends and I, we used to go to, we used to walk into the local post office and steal the wanted posters off the wall. Nice. And at 10 years old, we're walking around the neighborhood with wanted posters, like <laughs> looking at some guy wanted for a bank robbery in Kansas City. Like who would have gotten our asses kicked? we like, you know, yeah. we, we, we formed like a little posse. Me and my friends were stolen FBI wanted posters. By 20, I took the police exam. I went into the police academy at 21. I worked in a variety of units. I worked in a DUI unit. I worked in a plainclothes unit where we went after pickpockets and robberies in progress. I worked in the Manhattan North Narcotics Division where I wasn't an undercover, but I did purchase drugs for a while. And my last 10 years, I was a detective in uh, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division. So that was anything with chop shops, stolen cars, exporting of stolen cars out of the country, changing vehicle identification numbers for resale, identity theft, and anything you can imagine with crime, with, with cars. Right. Uh, again, I did a 20-year career. I retired in 2007, and then I got into writing books, and now I go on shows and, and podcasts to hawk my book. Yeah, that's freaking awesome, and I'm, and I'm glad that uh, – and we definitely want to get all those links up uh, on our social media uh, to help you with uh, selling some books as well. I, I've been super excited about talking to you because as, as a kid, me growing up – when you think of police, when you think of the police department, you always think about New York City Police Department. I mean, it's just it's pretty much on everything that you watch on TV or the movies. It's just when you say police department, that's what I think of as a New York Police Department. That's what I always think of. So that's what resonates with me. And I can't tell you how long it's been uh, since I've wanted to, to use Frank Sinatra to open the show. I mean, we've been doing we got over 200 episodes and I finally got to do it. So I appreciate you coming on and, and telling us some awesome stories. Well, I appreciate it. It's funny when I heard I heard you playing Sinatra, and I'm saying to myself, "There's no way that's his opening intro all the time." And I appreciate it. We used to old blue eyes. Unfortunately, now was old closed eyes. <laughs> right. Frankie Boy has been dead now, probably about 23, 23 years. Yeah. But at Yankee Stadium, at the end of every Yankee game, win, lose, or draw, they play that. Are you big in the stadium? Are you a big Yankees fan? I am. Um, growing up in the Bronx, and the funny thing is, I never paid for a ticket to go to a Yankee game. Between having to work the games as a police officer, a lot of times, like during playoff games or like rivalries with the Red Sox, it yes. gets a little crazy at yes. the stadium. So they'll, they'll fly in a bunch of cops. And my friend's mother, who is 80 something years old, still works for the Yankees. And I've never, she's always gotten myself and her son tickets. So I've never paid for a Yankee game in my life. That's a destination that I have yet to make. And I can't wait to do that. 
Uh, and I want to I want to thank your Yankees too because they're helping out my Braves beating up on the the miserable Mets. I don't know if you're if, you can't be a Yankees fan and a Mets fan. So I so uh, so we appreciate that. Uh, what's going on there? You know, I was a Braves fan. I like the Braves too. I mean, I was a big Braves fan in the '90s when they had uh, Maddox and Glavin and Smoltz. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, they were unstoppable with Leo Mazzoni. I mean, it was just it, it, just watching those four or five pitches, and then it, it seemed like the Braves would always bring up a guy that would do really well for a while until the wheels came off. Like, uh, was it Kent Merker? And then yeah. they had that um, Taiwanese guy, Chinmin Wang, or something. And, yeah. Yeah, the, the Braves. I always enjoy watching the Braves. I'm a I'm a Yankees fan at heart too. I mean, I, I if I it's always an American League team. It's always the Yankees. So I always 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 root for the Yankees. So, but a Braves fan, a diehard Braves fan, no doubt. Um, I, you talk about working security at at, at Yankees games. I, I mean, that's a book in itself. I can imagine. I mean, you imagine you could write a whole book on some of the stuff you've had to deal with at a at a Yankees game. Well, I, I, all right, so I'll just give you a quick background. So the New York City Police Department at any given time has between 35 and 40,000 members. Holy cow. So that that's a good, that's a Friday night at a Braves game, right? Right. And there's 9 million people in the five boroughs of New York City, and there's 77 police stations scattered across the city. Now, Every NYPD precinct has anywhere between 100 and 500 people, depending on the precinct. Like a precinct out in Staten Island, which is like farmland, well, it used to be, probably has about 120 cops. But then if you go into Midtown Manhattan, you have two Midtown precincts, Midtown North and Midtown South. Those precincts probably have close to 400 people per precinct. And then that's not even counting specialized units like the one I was in or the narcotics division or street crime. So when they have... There are cops assigned to Yankee Stadium. There's a handful of them, probably about 50, that work the games. They're in the parking lot. They hang out by the dugout. But again, like on weekends or playoff games or when the Red Sox come into town, what they'll do is they'll fly in anywhere between 500, 1,000, 2,000 cops for that game no just way. to make sure. Cause Yan- well, Yankee Stadium's in a shitty neighborhood. Sure, sure. I mean, who? Ours so, used to be. Ours used know, to be. Oh, yeah. And we used to, when we were kids, I mean, New York City was so bad in the 70s. When we were kids, we used to call it Yankee Bat Day self defense day. Because <laughs> they used to give you those little miniaturized bats yes. to defend yourself against the neighborhood residents. Like Jesus. that neighborhood, I don't know if it still is bad, but it was during my NYPD career. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of wild shit that goes on during a Yankee game, especially like towards the end of my career, there, were, there was talks about, you know, tearing down Yankee Stadium and building a new one. So every, you, you catch people trying to steal seats. Sure. Like literally trying to break the seats during the games and then try to smuggle them out or people running onto the field. It's fun to watch people run out onto the field because between the cops and security, they usually get clotheslined yeah. somewhere along the field. So I, I, I don't really have too many um, great Yankee Stadium stories, but I'll say this. I got to watch a I got to watch a lot of World Series and playoff games for free. You got to watch baseball history. I mean, that's that's – in itself, that's uh, I, I wouldn't if I was there working. I I probably wouldn't get much done because I'd be you know my eyes would be locked on the field the whole time. You know we and, oh yeah, and we were talking about with the Braves. You know we were we were in Fulton County, uh, and honestly, there at the end before they they decided to 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 move the stadium, it was actually unsafe for people to go to the ball games. And we talk about that how you know if you're there on the weekend and it's a night game. The game's over. You get your ass in the car and you you head back home because if you're if you're in the parking lot, 
there's just vagrants everywhere. So you're just taking a chance. And so we always had low ticket uh, ticket sales and low attendance. Uh, it, it, you know, for even such a good ball program that we, the baseball program we had. But once they moved it to Cobb County, um, they kind of built it as an experience around that whole. The battery is unbelievable. If you ever get get to come to Georgia, uh, you got to hit me up and we'll go to a Braves game. But that whole experience is so much better. And I think now. It's in a safer area. There's more to do. It's more family oriented all the way around. And, and and I think they're number two, number three in ticket sales for the past three years. So it's uh it's definitely a model that a lot of major league baseball programs are looking into. I mean, you're you're gonna see a lot of teams move. I mean, you look at Chicago, the Bears, they're looking to move from Soldier, you know, Soldier Field, if you can imagine that. But but uh it's just it's not safe to go to games in some places. So they have to make some adjustments. No, and when they they, tear, they tore down the old Yankee Stadium, they built a new one right across, right the, across the freaking they street. They just went across 161st Street and just fucking threw a new one up. <laughs> and, and the new stadium, I've been there a handful of times when I've been back up to New York, and it, it is really nice. I, I miss the old stadium. I knew the old stadium better. I, I've never worked a game in the new stadium. I've just gone to a handful of games. But it, it's still, it's impressive. Yeah, yeah. Well, you worked in all these different divisions what what was your favorite division to work in? Oh, my last 10 as a detective in the auto crime division because growing up in my neighborhood, the Bronx, I mean, my neighborhood, there were more car thieves in my neighborhood as a kid. And then I worked in a gas station as, as a teenager. So guys were always coming in with stolen cars, either trying to sell the car, sell stolen parts off the car, getting gasoline for their car. So I knew a lot what to look for, what to spot. And New York City in the early in in the nineties, New York City averaged one hundred and fifty thousand stolen vehicles per year. No way! So it was like shooting. Oh yeah! So it was like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, you could get into a car chase or get a stolen car arrest. I mean, it, it was easy. And I thrived in that environment. And I was always a car guy in uniform. I was always getting into car chases and locking up car thieves. And then once I got into the auto crime division, I I hit the ground running. So I enjoy I enjoyed the auto crime division my last ten years. Is it is it really like it is? I mean, I've worked on movie sets and worked on things, and they make everything look, uh, you know, a lot of times it looks like it's a, a lot more than it really truly is. But I could I could see like what what is a movie like Gone in sixty seconds, one of those movies, something like that. How true to 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 the the Grand Theft Auto and the chop shops and things like that is true to real life, what you see in the movies. Well, Mr. All right, so there's different reasons why people steal cars, okay? So you got the bottom feeder. Let's start with the bottom feeder. That's usually teenagers. They steal cars to get around. They steal cars to go to the movies. They steal cars to drive by the school at dismissal to, to pick up their girlfriend. Then you've got, you've got drug addicts, and they steal cars either to sell parts off them or they use the car to get around to cop drugs. They sleep in the car. They want to get high. They'll go to a park area or in a parking lot, and they'll shoot up, and they'll fall asleep in the car. Those are kind of like the pests. They're like the ants. Gotcha. Then you've got your Middle East. Then you've got, your, uh, then you've got like the, the, the middle-of-the-road car thieves, and they don't really have a lot of contacts. What they do is they're either into racing, so their friend blows a motor, They'll steal a car and they'll take the motor out or they'll do an insurance job for a friend or someone needs parts for something. They're a pain in the ass too, but the, the real ones are, are the professional car thieves and they, they're, they're affiliated with the junkyard. Um, 
clandestine chop shops in back of some guy's house and they drive cars into the woods off the side of a highway and they take the parts off and then they'll bring them to a body shop. Um, you know, they're not sophisticated. I've only run into a couple of really sophisticated guys for the most part. They're criminals. Right. I mean, and the only overhead they have is getting caught. So they're, they're pretty good about it. They, you know, you know, if you're going to steal a car, you know, if you do it in the middle of the night, you kind of stand out because who's out after 11, 12 o'clock at night? Right. Cops, criminals, and cabs. That's right. Right? Or drunk drivers. So, you know, guys that know what they're doing, they're, they're going to steal your car between probably, you know, when the sun goes down. I mean, there's no real time period, but they usually, when the sun goes down until about 11 o'clock at night, as my lieutenant used to say, you know, they got to get their sleep too. Right. Um, what they'll do is they'll park the car somewhere to make sure it'll cool off. I mean, things changed in the 90s with um, GPS and LoJack, you know, tracking systems. So what they'll do is they'll park the car somewhere to make sure it cools off where they have eyes on it to make sure the cops don't come around and like they'll, and the cops will sit on it. Then what they'll do is, and it depends on the operation. Some In the old days, they would drive the car right into the junkyard. The gate would shut and guys would be unbolting the doors and fenders or, or a torch or a sawzall and they'd start cutting it up. But after a while, with the GPS systems, we would get search warrants right inside the junkyard. So the junkyards didn't, I mean, the junkyards still want the parts. They just don't want the heat that comes with the stolen car. I got you. So what that would open up is, like I said earlier, that guys would drive cars into the woods. They'd unbolt shit. Then they'd put it in a van, and then the van would deliver the parts to the junkyard or the body shop. And they want those parts in and out as quickly as possible because, if, if, you know, the detectives come around looking to do an inspection and you've got a bunch of cars with, you know, parts on it with VIN numbers that are stolen or scratched off, you know, then they got a problem. Do you know how, like, you may not know the answer to this, but if you've got a, if you've got a good group of guys that's been breaking in, like stealing cars and stripping them down, how fast do you think those guys can disassemble a car if they had to like really just strip it down to the bare bolts? Quickly. Um, if you, if you have, if you have a location, where you, you, no one's around. Oh, quickly. I, we, we had a case where the guys would steal cars. And I mean, this was like a backyard goofball operation, but we had a junkyard in Hunts Point, And what they would do is it was, you had the junkyard, you had the thieves, and then the thieves would pay a guy. So they would steal a car and they would park it near a school. Right. So you got all the teachers in school. There's all these parking spaces. Then they would hire a junkie. He would go over to the car and what he would do is he, he looked like he was an old man and he had a little bullshit tool set and he would just, he, he would look like he was working on the car. He looked like a grandfather. He'd be over there. And what he was doing is he was just unbolting the fenders, unbolting the door. Oh, so he's loosening everything on. up. He was loosening everything up and he would, he would spend the whole day doing it. He'd put the nuts and bolts in a bag. And then what would happen is as soon as those teachers left, a van would pull up. Two, three strong guys would get out and just pull, you know, we had a tip. We were filming it. And two, three guys would jump out of that van and just pull all the sheet metal off that car, pull the seats out, throw everything. I mean, a minute or two, everything was off that car and that van was rolling. Yeah, that's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Those guys had uh, so many different, like, skills they could have been, they could have been used for good. And they just wanted a life of crime. So it makes no sense to me. Well, that, you're right. Criminals aren't dumb. They're right. lazy. They don't want to pay taxes and they want to work their own hours. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? They want to work when they want to work. You know what I mean? And, but you're right. Some of the, some of the scams and things they've, I mean, you're like, Jesus, 
you know, if if you put this to good use, you could be running a Fortune 500 company. Right. So I know, and I got a question too. It's uh, and I, I'm probably going to ask you questions, and you're going to think this guy's a moron, but or an idiot. It's in yeah. our title, so we get away with it. So, but uh, as far as like organized crime, like, did you guys ever deal with any like when you knew, hey, these guys are probably made. This is this is some serious organized crime shit, and you have to be oh, yeah. super careful, super careful how you handle it. Well, you're you're always careful because listen, a little junkie with 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 a, with a pen knife could stick you in the side of the throat. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? No, we we the, the major junkyards in Queens and Brooklyn were all owned by made guys in organized crime. Gotcha. Um, my office, well, our my office was in the Bronx. We were my my unit was a hundred and twenty uh, member unit that went across the five boroughs. But our Queens office did a case. Where uh, where the Mets play, Shea Stadium, that whole neighborhood back in the day was all junkyards and body shops and glass places and motor places. That basically to operate in that that place, it was run by the mob. Yeah. John Gotti's son-in-law basically oversaw that operation. So if you wanted to open up a body shop or a junkyard, you had to pay him. And I forget what it was. I'm just throwing numbers out there. I don't remember. This is over 20 years ago. But if you owned a business, you had to pay him, let's just say for argument's sake, anywhere between $500 and $1,500 a month just to operate there. Gotcha. And you had to use his sanitation guy. You had to use his person that was going to supposedly pick up the waste oil. So what our unit did was we rented out an abandoned junkyard. We put up a trailer in there. We had some car parts put in there, and we started a junkyard. Well, sure enough, Gotti's son-in-law walked into our trailer and started ordering us around. Like, what the fuck are you guys? You know, <laughs> you just don't come in here and open up a thing. And basically, we started paying him off. And you know, the case went on for about two years. We, he involved us in a lot of his scams. And uh, you know, when we took the case down, he got nine years. So, no, our our Queens and Brooklyn office um targeted the mob quite frequently and i was lucky enough i got to go along on like the roundups and you know do search warrants with these guys and you know uh, be on the arrest teams that locked up a lot of these made guys so oh no we dealt with them quite a bit so we got we'll talk about too uh, a lot of times how you know hollywood glorifies the mafia and you know they just make it they made it look just to be cool to to be involved with it to be a part of it you know they they glamorized it but actually, these guys are there's some there's some rough rough cats, man. There were some rough individuals. So, did you ever? Is there ever any time where anybody kind of made you feel a little uneasy about what you were doing uh, from that oh, end? Oh yeah, well okay. So so to so in my book, Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division, that's got a lot of mob stuff in it. So that case I was telling you about with um, Gotti's son-in-law, we were going to take that case down in January. And the FBI caught wind that we were we were into him, so they came to us like November, and said, uh, "Hey, you know, we we heard you're into him. Um, we 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 have a case on him too. Let's you know do a joint venture." And the powers that be, our supervisors said, "We don't need you. Mm-hmm. We're taking the case down in a month or two. It, it's a done deal. We don't need you." So what the FBI did was they released the they, they leaked the story no. to the newspapers no that they had that they had a case on him. So now what does that do? It shuts all his operations down. Mm-hmm. Well, he, no, he didn't shut down okay. his operations. But that, but now he's like, oh, shit, someone's talking. Who's talking? So we knew this because of wiretaps and informants. What he does is 
whoever he suspects could flip or might get cold feet and cooperate, he starts summoning them, summoning them to his place of business, which was a scrap metal processor in the Bronx, yeah. and he's smacking them around. Listen, you get a grand jury subpoena, you tell me, you better keep your fucking mouth shut. So he two guys that he was weary of, he brings them, he tells them to come to his place of business. While they're in his trailer getting smacked around, he had his guys take their cars and crush them into cubes. Oh, my God. So after these guys caught a beating inside the uh, inside his his office, they came outside. Their cars were crushed. They had to walk home <laughs> in the little boxes. Yeah, they, they crushed the cars in the fucking you know it. Yeah, take what? the fucking car, which it wasn't a car anymore. It was a three thousand hump, piece hunk of metal to get his point across. So there was another guy we dealt with. Um, he was a stone cold killer with the Gambinos. Oh, what the fuck was his name? He was basically a serial killer. Um, Charles, uh, I think Carniglia, we did surveillance on him a couple of times, and he insisted on, we used to call him Charlie, and he insisted on being called Charles. Like, hey, Charlie. He would spot us and come over and go, hey, guys, like, hey, Charlie. Go, Charles. <laughs> so um, we, did, we didn't actually, we got him on a couple of petty anti things, but the feds got him for a shitload of murders. He, he went to jail for the rest of his life. So, oh, no. But, you know, listen, uh, guys in that life, they're not going to, you know, tell you they're, you know, their resume, like, hey, I'm Tony Pepperoni and I've killed four people. But you hear things, you suspect things, you kind of know where they are in the food chain. So, yeah, I mean, and when you rattle their cage, sometimes they'll rattle yours. So, yeah. Dottie's son-in-law, um, basically, to send a message to um, one of our sergeants that was in on that case, um, my sergeant street, that sergeant street sign vanished. So like on his block where he lives, you know, like let's just say he lived on Main Street. The sign was missing from Main Street. And then when he went to talk to Gotti's son-in-law about something, he goes, hey, I heard your sign is missing. So <laughs> he's basically telling him, I fucking know where you live. Yeah. And I sent two guys there to steal you. So it was shit like Damn. that. It, it, they would rattle your cage, you'd rattle theirs. That's a... Uh... The guys that you're talking about getting smacked around and their car getting crushed, I guess they were just glad they wasn't stuck in the trunk during the process of the cars getting cubed up like that. No, nobody was in the trunk, but I'm sure that's happened. Yeah, that's what no, I'm saying. The they were they were just glad yeah. that they got to leave and they didn't end up in the, oh, in the yeah. trunk. So, yeah. Yeah, with a fat lip and a black, black eye, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that's unbelievable. So, what? How how long were you in the in the uh, like the narcotics side of it? I was in the narcotics division for 14 or 18 months. Um, you know what it was? I was young. I was making a ton of arrests in a precinct. And everybody started getting in my head. You should go to narcotics. You'd love narcotics. You'd love narcotics. And I did. And I absolutely fucking hated it. Um, at the time, I worked out of an armory in, in upper Manhattan. Uh, it was buy and bust operations. So I'll explain to you how my day went. So say there's, there's usually 10 guys in a team, right? And out of that 10, three guys are undercovered. So your sergeant will come up. So let's just say for argument's sake, our sergeant comes up to me and you and he goes, Hey, Rob, John, you're getting on, which means we're going to, we're going to take the arrest today. Okay, great. He's going to hand us a hundred dollar bill. You and I are going to run to a deli. We're going to break that hundred dollar bill into 25, tens and singles. Then what we're going to do is we're going to take all that, all that money and we're going to photocopy it. We're going to photocopy all the serial numbers. That's called pre-recorded buy money. Okay. Then, then what we're going to do is we're going to give that buy money. We're going to spread it out to the three undercovers. And now we've got a tack plan. It's almost like a, like battle plan. And it's got 
in, in narcotics, when you're buying drugs on a corner, every time you visit a location, we call it a set, like a movie set. So, and then on that tax plan, it, it tells what they're selling at that location. You don't want to send your undercover to a crack location asking for angels dust because he might get fucking, on, on, on the silly end, he might get stupid looks and told, get the fuck out of there. He might get hit with a bat. Yeah. So you kind of want to send the guy to a location where you know what you're doing. There's a lot of research into that. So then, me, you, and the sergeant are going to be in one car. We've got a, a device called a Kell receiver, which we're going to be able to monitor the conversation with the undercovers. They're wearing um, a wire or a microphone. I mean, things have changed nowadays. It could be like a keychain. Back then, they were they were wearing something like you know like the old school wire. Yeah. So, so you got your undercovers out there. It's going to be me, you, and the sergeant in another car, and you're going to have out of the other ten, two guys per car. And we're going to sit off the set four or five blocks away. So the undercovers are going to get on the radio. They're going, all right, we're stepping out. We're going to listen. You're going to hear them, you know, have a conversation with someone. They're going to step off the set. And you're going to hear, okay, positive buy. There's two pieces involved. One's a male black with a beard, red shirt, black pants. The other one's a female Hispanic with a green shirt and tan pants. Sergeant's going to get on the radio and go, all right, guys, did you hear those descriptions? All right, move in. And that's where the fun begins. Now you're pulling up for all angles. And it's the fucking rodeo back then. People, you know, guys, you're not even looking for it, throwing drugs in the air to get the fuck out of here because <laughs> yeah. everybody's selling on that corner, but somebody knows they sold to a cop. Like on a set, especially like in the good old bad days, like a location like 110 and Lex, on four corners on a New York City corner, like 110 and Lex in, in the 90s, there might have been 100 people out there selling drugs. So you pull up and you're looking for that male black with the beard and the female Hispanic with the tan pants. There's 30 other people selling drugs there. People are just dropping shit. So you're just yeah, fucking is, crashing people. Is, wow. Oh, it's like a fucking rodeo. You guys almost had to pull up in a paddy wagon put people to arrest everybody. Well, after after you after you lock up your people, right, you call what's called the P-Van. The P-Van's the prisoner van. That's going to be a panel truck. It's going to be an unmarked van, and it's the door slides open, and you keep going from set to set until that P-Van is filled. Once you've got 10, 15, 20 people in that P-Van, you go to the precinct, and then it's like a mass processing center. So then it's like, then all the prisoners are strip searched. Then you got to go through all this shit. Who's got pre-recorded buy money on them? Because that makes a stronger case. The undercovers go upstairs. They're up there doing their buy reports. And then after, after you've got that process, then, then the guys, me and you, are going to interview each prisoner hoping that they can tell us what apartment the drugs came out of, who's carrying a gun on the set. You want to sign that up as informant. You want to go up the chain in the organization. Right. And, I mean, we were locking up, I mean, garden variety. A lot of these guys, I mean, yeah, sometimes it was young kids that are out there selling, but a lot of times in the old days, it was heroin addicts. And what they would do is they'll sell 10, 10 decks of heroin. For every 10 decks of heroin they sell, they get to keep one. So they're, they're basically selling to, to just to get high, high so they don't go through withdrawal, right? Yeah. So a lot of these people are like they have AIDS or hepatitis C. I remember always having a cold when I worked in narcotics because you're dealing with street people. Right. I mean, they live outdoors and you're, you know, strip searching them and, and interviewing them. So I always had a cold. I was always afraid of getting hepatitis C or AIDS. Yeah. A lot of them had that and a lot of them carry needles and you'd always say, listen, Tell me now if you got a fucking needle, all right? Yeah, if I, I get poked, you get my hand into your fucking yeah, right. right, then, right. The, your last three if teeth you fucking, are gonna if go I get missing. If I get stuck with a fucking needle, you're gonna have a very long day, right? <laughs> yeah. So, 
you know, and most of the time they were cool about it. You know, I mean, 99% of them were cool. It was just like the knuckleheads or someone that forgot. They're just so fucking out of it. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're on death's doorstep. They don't even know what the fuck they're doing half the time. So I just, you know, I was in narcotics for 14 or 18 months and I fucking absolutely hated it. And um, I took a step backwards. I went back to uniform and everybody's like, what happened? I'm like, I, I just didn't like it. Yeah. And, you know, through hard work and persistence, I got back into organized crime. And then, you know, I, I, I worked in the auto crime division. I know nowadays, too, it's, it's such a huge, um, it's a huge risk now for law enforcement, even, you know, EMTs or, or firefighters as well. And they have to go deal with people who's, who's overdosing because fentanyl is so bad right now. So that's that's one thing that. I know, I know you're probably, you know, pretty fortunate. You're grateful that you don't have to deal on, deal with any of that on any aspect because, man, that's so, such bad news. It's, you know, I have a lot of friends of mine are in law enforcement, and that's just one of the things that they're, you know, they're all very, you know, aware of. But hell, it can happen at any time. You could get a hold of some and not know, you know. So it's, um, yeah, we didn't have fentanyl. Yeah. The, the thing that we were afraid of was angel dust because angel dust. First of all, people that are dusted or have smoked it. They're like, if you ever watch a video when someone's running around naked in the street yeah. fighting with people, yeah. they're dusted. Yeah. Angel dust, it, 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 I don't know if it raises your body temperature or you're under the appearance that your your blood is boiling. They'll yeah. tear off their clothes and they're fucking, it's like a circuit breaker has blown and they, you know, it's like fighting somebody that's just, I mean, they're that, they're da- really dangerous. Also with dust, it's got, a really bad smell. It smells bad when it's burning and it smells bad when it's in the packet. And you can get a contact high from dust. So I used to tell my undercover, Holy like, cow. there was a couple of dust spots, not many, like there was two up in hall. I and mean, I used to tell my undercover, like, listen, if they're not selling crack or heroin, stay the fuck out of that dust spot because you would get such a headache just fucking handling that mm-hmm. shit. Like it was like, it would ruin your fucking day. You know what I mean? And like, we used to do controlled deliveries. So what would happen is sometimes customs would hit on a package, like a dog would hit on a package, and it maybe it wasn't enough for them to handle or they were busy. So they would call us in, right? So we would take, you know, a package of heroin or a package of cocaine. We'd wrap it back up, and then we would either borrow a UPS truck, a mail truck, whatever uh, courier was deliver- was supposed to deliver that thing. And I would dress up or one of my office mates would dress up and, you know, you'd knock on the door, you'd go up to the apartment, you'd knock on the door, someone would open the door, you'd have them sign for it. And then as you're coming down the stairs, you're wearing a microphone, you go, all right, positive buy, there's two male blacks, there's two male Hispanics in the apartment, I didn't see a weapon. Now, it's, and it was the funniest thing, well, I'm dressed like a postal employee or mailman, and I'm opening up the door, and here comes my friends come <laughs> flying through the fucking door with a battering ram, take the fucking door off the hinges. And um, one time I remember, like it was yesterday, we, we intercepted, it was, I don't know, maybe it was a half a key of heroin, but it was like wrapped up, fucked up. It wasn't like you see like a brick. Mm-hmm. And my lieutenant had opened it up. And he put it on the table, and there was like a little bit of a poof, and we all fucking ran away from the <laughs> fucking desk. I just, shit, the last thing in the world I need to do is get a random fucking, you know, drug test, and these fucking particles in the air, no and, you know, kidding. and I got China white in me. Yeah, we yeah. all went and got exposure numbers. Nobody got high off it, but we were fucking nervous wrecked, because yeah. he put the box down and went poof. <laughs> get the fuck yeah, away. that would have been you know, like We all ran out of the fucking room. It was like, it was like fucking anthrax in that thing. 
I had uh, I had told a story one time. Uh, I used to work the door at a bar, and we they of course you know everybody does whatever they do in the bar. Uh, and there was this girl. She was sitting by herself, and I mean we all knew who she was, and she was kind of she was pretty, and you know like nobody thought anything you know weird about her. And she was just crying, like like had her knees pulled up to her, like arms wrapped around her knees, and she's just crying hysterically. And so I'm like, "Are you okay? What's wrong?" She's like, "She's like, I'm not okay." And I was like, "Well, what's the matter? What's wrong with you?" She goes, "I smoked some angel dust, and I'm really fucked up right now." And I'm looking around, I'm like, "Y'all get this bitch out of here! <laughs> get, yeah, get her somewhere." Yeah, like you hear about people like chewing on someone's face, yes. and see the fucking bath salts, well, fucking dust. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, "Yeah, y'all get get her somewhere else." <laughs> Not here, preferably. So that's freaking crazy. Um, so with uh, I, I, I'm fascinated with the organized crime uh, part of it uh, in the mafia and things like that. And there's, and I know there's, you've got so many stories. And what I don't want to do is just bombard and overload everybody with everything at one time. Like I said, I really want you to come back and be a part of the show whenever you have time Absolutely. to come in and talk. And, uh, I would I would love to to schedule maybe some time where we can do this thing uh, as frequent as you as as you have the time for. And the main thing is, I appreciate you so much for coming on and talking to us and uh, and being a part of the show. I definitely want you to let everybody know where they can find your books. Where can we Where can we go uh, purchase your books? And then also tell me how I can put it out there for you on our website and our social media. So that way we can, we can, we can get people uh, up to speed on, on those books. Sure. All my books. Um, I'll, I'll tell you I'll, if I can give you the names. Um, yes, NYPD please Law do. And Disorder. Yeah. NYPD Law and Disorder. Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division, the NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime and Chaos, NYPD Through the Looking Glass, Stories from Inside America's Largest Police Department. And I just wrote a book, which is not NYPD themed, but it's about growing up in the Bronx and going to Catholic high school called Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. Awesome. And it awesome. basically details me being a little son of a bitch running around <laughs> the Bronx and I straightened out my act before I became a cop. Well, But anyway, all my books are available on Amazon. Um, okay. All my books are in paperback. They're average between 225 to 245 pages. I try to keep the price point down. All my paperbacks are $10, and all my ebook downloads, like Kindle, Kindle Unlimited, are $2.99 ebook download, and they're all available on Amazon. Okay, good deal. Awesome. Before you go, what is the craziest arrest story that you can give me? Like, just the, one of the wildest things that you've seen the whole time I, you were working. I can give you so. You know, it's funny. I could give you so much shit. All right, I'll tell you the Hansel and Gretel story. Yes, perfect. So, okay. Early 90s, I'm in my 20s. We're going out to bars, picking up girls, having a grand old time. And there were cop bars, and there'd be cops there from different precincts. So I used to work with this guy later on in my career. We used to call him Cancer because he killed more people than Cancer. He was <laughs> a couple of gun battles. He always came out on top. Jesus. Well, at the time, before he worked with me, he worked with this guy that was an amateur magician. So we'd be at the bar talking to girls, and the magician would come over, and he's pulling fucking flowers out of his out of his sleeve, and he's pulling coins from behind the ears. Basically, he's cock blocking us with magic. <laughs> so I turn to Cancer and I go, "Get this motherfucker out of here!" Like, how do you compete with this guy? And he goes, "You know, I wish he took his NYPD career as serious as he did his his amateur magician show." So a couple of weeks later, they get called. It comes over nine one one. It's a call for help in a basement apartment. 
So they go down into this basement apartment, and in New York City, you've got these six-story walk-up buildings, and when you go down into the basement, there's usually a couple apartments down there where the superintendent lives of the building that takes care of, you know, shovels the snow and fixes things around the building. So they go to the two doors. So my partner and, can, and the magician go, and they knock on door number one. No one answers. They go to knock on door number – so they go to knock on door number two. So my old – uh, the magician tells my my old partner, don't knock on that door. We made enough noise down here. If someone was out, out there, they would have come out already. But what they didn't know was behind door number two, the super lived there, and he was selling coke out of the apartment. No. He got addicted to he got addicted to coke, and what wound up happening was he fell behind on his payments to his wholesale. Now, in the drug world, when you don't pay your debt, they don't cancel your cable or send friendly reminders <laughs> you're behind. Nope. Basically, they sent a couple of fucking hitmen <laughs> to take care of him. So what they did was it's an old gypsy trick. To get this guy out of the apartment, they took a good-looking girl. She knocked on the door. The guy looked through the peephole. He sees this beautiful girl. He thinks he's going to get a blowjob or he's going to sell some coke. He opens the door. These two guys bum rush him. They start pistol whipping the super of the building. Where's the coke? Where's the drugs? He doesn't have the answers. They shoot him in the head. Oh, my they God. They roll him up in a carpet. They roll him up in a carpet, they drag him out of the apartment, and they throw him in the furnace. They go back into the apartment, and they're ransacking it for the drugs and money. So while the super is going up in the furnace like a Puerto Rican fire log, my old partner and the magician are outside just about to knock on that door. Oh, my God. So the magician the magician convinces my partner, nah, don't knock on the door. I want to fucking make balloon animals in the police car. <laughs> so they leave. What? Right? They leave. So... A week or two later, the Super's family hasn't seen this guy. They go to the police. So the detectives get involved, and they see there's a 911 call, call to the apartment. They bring in my old partner and the magician, and they go, you know, when you guys were called to that apartment about a week ago, this guy hasn't been seen. Do you remember anything out of, you know, out of order or anything? And my old partner goes, no, we didn't knock on that door. We knocked on the first door. But I'll tell you what, when we were leaving, there was a car parked on the fire hydrant, and they gave it a ticket. Well, that was the getaway car. No way. And the getaway car belonged to the girl. Oh, so let me, let me back up a little bit. While they were outside that door, just about to knock on the door, the three of them, the girl and the two hitmen, came up with a plan. The two hitmen told the girl, if these two cops knock on the door, this is what you're going to do. You're going to let them in and start yelling and screaming in Yugoslavian and start pointing to the kitchen. When you walk past the threshold of this door, throw yourself on the floor. We'll come out of the bedroom. We'll shoot these two cops in the head. We'll take them out. We'll throw them in the furnace, and we'll get the fuck out of here. So they were willing to burn up three people. Good Lord. So anyway, they trace the car through the parking ticket to the female. They bring her in for questioning. She starts fucking coming unglued, trying to distance herself from the homicide, but she's in it too. Oh, yeah. In she's... for a penny, in for a pound. She gives up the two Albanian hitmen, and... They're all arrested and get life in prison. So that's a story from NYPD through the Looking Glass, and I think that's called "Last Night a Magician Saved My Life." God, so man, that is crazy. That he working with this magician, he would have gotten burnt up in a furnace. Yeah, see, y'all, you you guys don't realize uh, how uh, man, golly, dude, that's so wild. That is crazy. I can't believe that. 
That's something else. You guys are. Th- you want a story? You want a story? That's yeah, a story. dude. No, this is that's exactly. Uh, I, I know everybody's gonna love that. Yeah, that's a. Uh, but yeah, you y'all know that the guy was cock blocking y'all with magic, but he actually saved everybody's lives. So. Saved life, yeah. Jesus Christ, that's insane. Well, look, I want to thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for your time. Also, thank you for your service and all you you know all the things that you did back in the day serving uh, under the badge. And uh, we look forward to talking to you real soon.